Welcome to Great Minds, and this is a special edition that we're doing with a longtime and dear friend, the founder and CEO of Cargo, my pal, Harry Cargman. Welcome, Harry. Thanks. And you forgot about, uh, we, I think we've played golf a couple of times, so golfing buddy, it's not, that wasn't my title. We're going to talk about your prowess on the course, inevitably. Um, and we're going to do this one a little bit differently. We're going to talk about you. We're going to talk about cargo, but we're also sort of going to do a little uh, review, if you will, of what just went down last week at Hudson Yards at Advertising Week, where Cargo was once again uh, a major partner uh, with us, uh, both on stage and behind the scenes, enabling all of us to access Wi-Fi thanks to Cargo, which uh, certainly made all of our lives a lot easier. So that was uh, terrific, Harry. I'm very appreciative, first and foremost. And it worked great in Hudson Yards. I know that we've had Wi-Fi difficulties in movie theater situations in the past. And so to have, uh, I, one, I love the signage, but two, the fact that the Wi-Fi, we finally have a venue where it works flawlessly is, uh, it's, 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 uh, it's a big step up. And what an amazing space, by the way. I mean, congratulations on taking that over. Uh, you know, you never know with the pandemic, but it was it was pretty packed. I, I was super impressed with the number of people that showed up. Well, thank you. And uh, I know that the team did yeoman's work working with Related, the developer of Hudson Yards. There was some enormous pipe that we brought in to enable that all to work as well as it did. And so clearly that was a good call. So we'll talk about advertising week, but let's there's so much ground to cover here with you, Harry. Such an interesting story. And I want to talk about the Stitcher ads uh, transaction, which was reported, I think, on the first day of Advertising Week. Um, but I want to go back, Harry, and go all the way back to the beginning. You founded Cargo in what were the early days of mobile. You were a real almost soothsayer in you know, seeing the future before it actually arrived in the mobile arena. And I want to go back in particular to not a great day for America, for any of us, to say the least, and that would be 9-11. As I recall, part of the story, Harry, is that Cargo, which was relatively new at the time, was almost put out of business. And somehow you hung in there. And of course, now we know the future is extraordinarily bright at Cargo and has been for a number of years. But take us back to that tougher time in those dark days just over 20 years ago. So I would say that there's two periods of Cargo, Cargo 1.0 and Cargo 2.0. Cargo 2.0 really started in 2003, January 2003. Uh, to Cargo 1.0, um, where I had raised a bunch of money and started in a loft space in Tribeca, started in 1999. I had moved, I started the company in Los Angeles. One of my partners was a uh, professor, an adjunct professor at Columbia University in computer science. And I moved to New York because he still had some teaching responsibilities, couldn't move. Uh, you know, Cargo was, was really founded in Los Angeles initially. Um, but I moved to New York and I slept on the couch of a buddy of mine who was a postdoc fellow at uh, Columbia, who was also a co-founder. Uh, and he had a dorm room on like 121st Street. I think that's right. Uh, on the west side. And I sort of couch surfed when I had packed up my apartment from L.A. And we sort of uh, incubated and created this thing um, to start. And. Then I raised some money and we moved into a loft space at 74 Franklin Street. Uh, in those days, it was like, you know, you go out in the street, it would be like tumbleweeds and like, and people who were on crack. I mean, Tribeca was, was definitely not where it is today. The, the, the Tribeca is, you know, obviously one of the hottest neighborhoods to live in, but at that time, it definitely was not. Um, and, uh, and so we had this crazy loft space, a uh, bunch of artists were still living in Tribeca. Uh, funny enough in this loft space, which was a three floor loft space, the first two floors were for the company for engineering and product. Uh, it was mostly an engineering and product company. And the third floor was my bedroom. That's where I was living. Uh, and it was sort of had the spiral staircase that went up. Um, and funny enough, um, I went to school with Rashida Jones, who you know from Parks and Rec, et cetera. 
and she had just moved out. She was living with Mark Ronson, the, the, you know, the producer uh, in a loft space in the same building, but just one floor above ours. So we were like the third floor, but it was like three floors and you'd go up like another two flights of stairs and it would be like the fifth floor was their, was their space. But in any event, uh, we moved into this cool building and, um, and sort of built the business uh, in that building 1.0. And, um, and 9-11 happened and, uh, and basically that entire area of Manhattan was shut down. Um, we had, uh, you know, we were already had, had sort of burnt through a lot of our capital and we couldn't really suffer sort of remote work. And it wasn't like today where you had Slack and Zoom and all these capabilities. And the company really didn't survive, uh, you know, through that. Um, it was down to me and two other folks sort of working remote. Um, and we actually got a World Trade Center grant that, that sort of sustained the company um, and allowed us to sort of continue to invest because we had we had run out, we had to sort of pivot the business uh, and we we pivoted the business into building out sites and hosting sites as well as ringtones images and games for major operators from building software for operators at the time um we pivoted into sort of like this rev share relationship with the operators on a business development perspective built out all these sites and uh was on a subscription basis and that was sort of the initial steps of cargo 2.0 in january of 2003 um and really we didn't get into the advertising business until i would say 2008 2009 somewhere around there was our sort of our first maybe 2007 was our first uh, attempt to, to start to monetize some of these mobile sites that we're hosting but you know the company uh the company went through eight years of a period of time where there was uh, a lot of investment technology but really no revenue and no growth uh, my wife at the time i married her in 2002 was sort of scratching her head and say when are you gonna go and get yourself a real job and so there was a, a long period of time where things didn't uh didn't necessarily pan out and and then we continued to pivot the business. We probably pivoted four to five times in total. Um, and when we hit advertising and started to grow, um, it really sort of transformed the business. And then there were a period of six years where it was increasing 100% year over year. So, you know, for all of those would-be entrepreneurs, understand, you know, I, I spent more time than most. Most people would have pivoted out of, out of the business. I lost about eight years of my life on a business that was relatively flat, not growing, but sometimes it takes that time to incubate, uh, to get you, you know, to where you are today. But that cargo journey from 1.0, as you said, to 2.0, I mean, you went from almost out of business, a grant I read somewhere, give or take $70,000 from the trade center, you know, kept the lights on. And just that evolution, Harry, to go from where you were then to a reported, publicly reported transaction of 64 some odd million to acquire Stitcher ads. That's an amazing story, Harry. Yeah, with no outside capital. We, we, I mean, there was outside capital in 1.0, but none of those existing investors was willing to put more money in after you know, the 2001 you know, burst of the tech bubble. Um, and so you know, it was, uh, been sort of a passion project labor for love and the reality is um for a period of time you'd worry about making payroll you know it's just sort of the nature of of running a company without outside capital so a lot of stress to get there uh, but the exciting part about it is you know looking back you know all of those periods of time where either you couldn't raise capital or you didn't want to raise capital or some combination you know, with the progress and success that we've, we've had and the fact that we could even afford a $64 million acquisition on our own balance sheet, um, you know, that's a, that's, a, that's a ton of, you know, you, you feel really good about that progress and the success of the company and all the people. It's really about the people and the team that gets you there. But to have that level of, of, of success without, you know, third-party capital, you know, it really means that everybody at Cargo and everybody who joins Cargo will be able to um, hopefully take advantage of that lack of dilution uh, over that period of time. And so we're uniquely set up for um, myself, our employees, uh, and the P our advisors to, um, 
to hopefully have a, a, a great opportunity, you know, if the company ever were to go public and create some kind of liquidity, a great opportunity for, for participation in that where you see many companies in the space have taken very significant amounts of capital and have been significantly diluted over the, over, over the years. Yeah, another chapter in the great story. So you're unique in so many ways, Harry, and, and one of them, and we touched on this earlier, is you sort of saw the mobile future before a lot of other people did. You also built a company, let's call it 2.0 as you do, um, that has lasted. You've grown steadily. You have ridden the mobile wave, arguably, better than anybody else in the space. And back when you started, let's go back again to 2.0 in 2003, an awful lot, I would say the vast majority of the big players in mobile did not make it over the long term. Or in 2003, they didn't exist. I mean, if you think about it, as of that year, I don't think there was, there was no Uber, there was no Facebook, there was no, I mean, it's crazy. Or maybe Facebook, but I don't think so. I don't yeah, think no, Facebook was 2005. You're right. Yeah. So it's, it's crazy. Let's talk about the competitive landscape. But before we go there, what is it about your vision, about cargo that has enabled you to succeed where so many others did not? I think... Part of it is a focus on serving customers and innovating products. We've never been afraid to pivot the company. We've probably had multiple pivots over the years. And there is a, a clear understanding that if you continue to try to do the same thing over and over again without reinventing yourself, sooner or later, uh, the market will catch up to you and surpass you. And so without, without that constant understanding that reinvention is a prerequisite to survival, you know, there will always be existential risk to the existing organization as it currently runs. And so therefore, there has to be a desired adoption of new capabilities and new features and new functionality and new approaches to the market uh, with an open mind. Um, without that, I think that the, the business would not have survived, um, over those years. Uh, it's, it's a constant force of reinvention that you need to inject into the fabric of the company itself. Um, and we, and, and that's something that, you know, I think I've even had, um, uh, disagreements with, uh, prior members of our executive team um, over uh, the, 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 on the one hand, the desire to specialize and to do, you know, one thing great and to do it better and better over time and to not get distracted by doing multiple things and trying to figure out if there's other things that stick and the knowledge clear as day that without sort of reinvention and new products and new areas to explore uh, and new things to bring customers um, in the constantly changing world of advertising technology and the constant barrage of new capabilities that clients will want to try out, um, if you're not providing those new capabilities and reinventions and, and uh, functionalities to clients, they will sooner or later find you um, non-innovative and not interesting to, to work with. And that's something that, you know, I think there's that balance that needs to be struck between exploring new paths and opportunities and trying to stick to your knitting and do something well uh, and constantly sort of focus on doing that one thing better and better over time so that you are the leader in that one thing. A great, great answer. So you, you touched on it, but let's dig a little bit deeper. 2003, the world was a little bit different. We were three, four years away from the iPhone, three, four years away from YouTube. Facebook was give or take 2005. Uh, and almost all of the subjects that we talk about today, many of which we 
covered quite heavily at Advertising Week just last week in terms of data and analytics and AI and AR and on and on, none of those subjects existed. Talk about the landscape then as you were launching Cargo 2.0. And, you know, uh, are you in retrospect, Harry, surprised, not surprised at the unbelievable growth of mobile? Yeah, so I'm not survived. uh, I'm not surprised at survived. I'm not surprised at the unbelievable growth of mobile because mobile as a platform uh, was clear as day, uh, what I call the remote control to your life. It's how you communicated. Um, it's how you interoperate with the world around you. Um, you know, I'm frankly, sir, I, I am uh, now 18 year, you know, overnight success as they, as they would put it. Um, but but the reality is um, clear as day, even going back to when I saw that first browser on the phone, the idea that you could use it as an ability, you know, I, I can lock my car with it. I can find my car. I can find my keys. I can, uh, I can open the door to my office and open the door to my home. I can uh, send funny emojis to my wife and kids. Uh, I can share videos I can make restaurant reservations. I can show my boarding pass to, uh, to the airport and get on a plane. I can now prove my vaccination status all on a single device. If you think about you know, the fact that it becomes you know, a, a, critical, a critical component of, of identity, a critical component of access, a critical component of commerce, a critical component of communication, all of that, the promise of all of that uh, was, was apparent to me uh, back uh, in the very earliest periods of 2000 uh, with, with the fact that this device uh, was, was in your pocket. Um, and really, well, I don't think we'll be transformed until you move uh, some of that functionality into sort of the biological I think, uh, I think, you know, the phone will continue to be uh, the driver of, of most of that communication, just because you, you use your eyes as your primary mechanism, uh, unless you can actually talk to a true AI uh, intelligence that would be able to act uh, on your behalf, which you've seen sort of in, in sci-fi. So I think we're a long way away from that. I think the device will still be the major device. That being said, going back to 2003 and answering your question, you're talking about flip phones with small screens, with proprietary operating systems, and are completely controlled by an ecosystem that is owned by the operator. Um, I was extraordinarily surprised in that moment in time when they announced the iPhone. Uh, And it was, I think, 2007, was when the iPhone truly sort of took a pivot where the ecosystem created around games and music and ringtones was not on the carrier infrastructure. Meaning that the carriers had such a tight hold on the ecosystem in terms of the games you looked at, the music you played, the ringtones you downloaded. When AT&T, which was the first to launch the iPhone, was willing to give Steve Jobs and Apple the operating system and ecosystem that surrounds the operating system, I was extraordinarily surprised because I saw that as a moment of monumental change in terms of the carrier which controlled the software, the services, the technology, and even the entertainment they sort of allowed a third party to take control of that. And, you know, the writing's on the wall today. All of that is now controlled in the Apple and now Android ecosystems. And the carriers really don't have or provide a huge number of, of services other than the ability to make a telephone call and the ability for messaging through their infrastructure. But other than that, almost all other services have migrated into the closed garden ecosystems of, of Apple and Android, which 
pretty fascinating when you think about that, that monumental shift um, that took place. It is. And, and I definitely want to come back to that. That's a great, great area and certainly timely and topical. Cargo, I, I love the notion you, you, you know, put out there, an 18-year overnight success story. So many of the big players that were around, and we touched on this also, didn't make it. Going back, look at brands like BlackBerry, like Nokia, like Motorola. I mean, it is a real graveyard of folks that were dominant players and disappeared almost completely. Hubris. That would be the one word that I would use to describe what happened there. If you look at BlackBerry, they absolutely could have pivoted and survived. Uh, there was a lot of desire for that, but they had a lot of hubris around both the ecosystem as well as around their devices and, and around their dominant position. Uh, and they weren't able to sort of pivot to become more relevant in, in the world that sort of created. And frankly, they didn't, if you really were to look at it, they didn't build an ecosystem of apps and publishers. They made it really difficult uh, to, to get on the platform. Uh, and they, they made it really difficult to, to interop with, interoperate with them. And I think that, um, and that, by the way, could absolutely befall Apple and, and Android as well. Um, you know, the fact that Android just announced that they're dropping their, their take rate for publishers to 15%, whereas Apple, I don't think, has made that, that choice or that change. You know, they're, you know if you're a, a student of history, you know that these things change extraordinarily fast. You know, TikTok wasn't even something that people thought about, you know, even a few years ago. Uh, and as a social media platform, look at its, its massive growth. Um, you know, I think Twitter, if you look at Twitter's and, and Apple's announcement, I'm sorry, Twitter and Facebook's announcement around how Apple has affected uh, its ability to target consumers, um, they both project significantly less growth into the future, um, primarily based upon changes to the ecosystem. So those changes have monumental effects on all players, including the largest quote unquote monopolies in the space. And it, it really goes back to the same forces of required change and adoption and, and understanding of how the market is evolving. Those forces while on cargo and helped us survive because we understood and, and were able to embrace them are the same forces even on the largest car companies out there. Uh, they have more time to evolve than I think a company like Cargo does because we're, we're less diversified than they are. But those forces are at work every day. So I call them sort of market eroding forces. And it's a question of like, are you able to continue to uh, reinvent um, and come up with new products um, that, that truly are differentiated? Uh, while you have the market eroding forces taking place on a regular basis. Yeah, it's clear that uh, control over the two platforms, Apple's iOS and Android, they're the real masters of the universe right now. For the moment, yeah. But, you know, it's, it's interesting in that they themselves are beholden to developers and purchasers of devices. And so, you know, just case in point, you know, the more Apple cracks down on its ecosystem, uh, they do things like what they've just done to make IDFA disappear. Um, that will actually have an impact on Apple itself. So if you think about it, monetization of advertising on the, in the Apple ecosystem, in-app ecosystem, uh, is going to get significantly more difficult and you saw that with the announcements around Facebook and Twitter and others. Don't think that that same problem is not gonna face every other mobile in-app advertising company that's, that's in the ecosystem. So what does that ultimately mean? It means that all the apps that you know and love that are on the device that are not paid or subscription apps 
and they're not utility apps that are a part of a different system. So for example, Uber app uses credit cards to purchase a car. That app is, you know, that is the primary purpose, but the payments that take place happen on the credit card to pay the driver. Sure, and that's what I call a utility app. All the other apps that are entertainment apps, et cetera, that require or rely on advertising and not subscription as their primary mechanism for driving uh, revenue, all of those guys are, are going to hit some type of wall with regard to declines in their revenues with the changes that Apple made to IDFA. No question about it. Because without context or content uh, to align to advertising, advertisers are not going to see the ROI that they had previously. And they're not going to put their money there because they don't see the ROI. Or they can't, even if they, if they believe that it's there, if they can't actually measure it because the attribution has gone away, then people will not put their money there. And so what does that mean? It means that the ecosystem, the vibrant ecosystem of advertising supported apps eventually might not be today, may not be six months from now, but over some period of time, that ecosystem will start to erode. And if that's the case and developers are not developing as much for the Apple ecosystem because the money is not there, the, 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 business, the business impetus is not there, I think the iPhone becomes a lot less valuable. So you know, you have to be very careful. It may be that you make a short-term change that has some short-term effects, but the long-term implications may actually, you know, create a uh, downward spiral for the companies that are doing it in the first place because they are, quote-unquote, championing privacy or they don't like the ad ecosystem or they don't like this or they think they're doing it vis-a-vis -vis competition against Google. Um, but it may actually have these unintended consequences over the medium and long term that weren't necessarily anticipated when, when those changes, you know, were, were put into place. So you touched on it in terms of impacts on brands somewhere along the line. I think you said about 2008, 2009, one of the pivots of the business was to move towards working with the biggest brands in the world. And over time, cargo has become uh, a preferred and trusted partner of many of the largest brands in the world to work with in a variety of ways. And you do so many things uh, throughout uh, that space. Talk about that initial pivot. What drew you to it? Because for many years, as you said, advertising was not really part of the cargo business equation. And let's talk about that growth journey because it's a, also a great story. Well, it's, it's, an it's an existential pivot as well, right? Again, it's, it's understanding where the market was, is, is, is going to. So let, let, me, let me set the stage. The iPhone comes out, I believe it's 2007. Android comes out a few years later. The, the, the flip phones, the Nokia devices, the BlackBerry devices, uh, the Sony Ericsson devices, the Motorola devices, uh, they all, in terms of the proprietary OS on those devices, start to become a smaller and smaller part of the carrier devices sold. So you could walk into any store and look at the lineup. And what you really saw was that iPhone would sell out hugely so. Android, when it came, would start to displace some of those iPhone sales, but that original flip phone with the original OS on it became, you know, started to cr get crowded into a small corner of the store and then become like a small wall for those people that, you know, have still not or desire not to actually have a, a computer screen with access to the world in their pocket. And so in that moment of period, you know, the vast majority of our revenues, as I said, what came from subscriptions to content through the carrier ecosystem, uh, people would subscribe to Rolling Stone or Us Weekly, or they get ringtones or images or games from the carrier ecosystem. And we would get paid based upon those product opportunities. Do you remember all those TV ads uh, where you sign up for $9.99 a month and you would get like the, 
what was it called? The the laughing frog or whatever it was. Yeah. Sing those funny songs. Anyway, that was, that was a moment in time when you saw those sort of direct to consumer ads to sign up for those subscriptions. But going back to that period, you came to the realization that subscriptions on the carrier bill, if it's not available on iPhone and Android, well, you're serving a smaller, smaller percentage of the population. And so you go, oh, crap. Well, these sites that I'm hosting where you see the traffic growth on those sites coming from iPhone and Android, none of the subscription capabilities in the carrier ecosystem worked on iPhone because again, separate ecosystem, separate monetization, separate billing practices. And the carriers never forced a one-click bill opportunity to to work on iPhone itself. Plus the iPhone was good enough from uh, showing non-mobile optimized sites perspective, where you could sort of pinch and zoom and all of that content was free, that asking consumers to pay for accessing content became a harder and harder value proposition. Why would you do it when you can get something that's close enough, good enough for free? So we came to the realization uh, that we better pivot to a new business model or we're gonna be out of business. That was sort of the clearest day, writing on the wall. So we're like, how do you monetize free content since we were hosting and managing these sites? The only way that we could figure out to monetize it, because we couldn't really be successful getting subscriptions, was advertising. We had no other mechanism for thinking about monetization. So we're like, we better figure this out. So originally, at the beginning, we went to the publishers, these large, at the time, they were massive publishing companies. We're like, listen, if we go build unique ways to sponsor content inside your mobile sites, because we were hosting and managing the sites at the time, do you think you guys could sell it? Said, Absolutely. And then what happened was, since they were trying to sell TV commercials and pages and print, they wanted to give away these sponsored integration pieces into the site. So the people we work with are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We sold it as part of this package on the print side. And uh, we gave this mobile stuff away for free. I said, great. Well, how do I get paid? And they were like, uh, yeah, we don't, we haven't figured that out yet. So we're like, this is no bueno. This was no good. So we said, listen, but, but still, even with those sponsorship items, they were few and far between. It was like one or two campaigns over a quarter that would run for very short periods of time. So we're like, we better figure this out on the cargo side. Meanwhile, our advertising vision was we didn't have any technology at the time, really. We, we had technology to host and manage sites, but we didn't have technology to ad serve. So we were actually hard coding these incredible sponsorship integrations directly into the pages. Frankly, I think as a, if you could do it in a scalable way, it's almost like a better ad experience because it was so organic to the sites at the time. We would have like a gallery part of some of these entertainment sites and they would have integrated sort of voting brought to you by a brand inside of those places that we would build that functionality from scratch on behalf of the brand as almost like a one-off. And it was really the most creative integrations uh, that you could think of uh, into, into these placements. It's sort of like why you think that General Motors uh, sponsorship of Transformers, where they got to sell the greatest and latest you know, of these vehicles inside of Transformers when you watch the movie, or like that's the greatest integration, sponsored integration you've ever seen. That was our whole business at the time. And so we started setting that up to scale. And I think for our advertising partners, they always believed that we had something unique and amazing to bring them because we would sort of creatively invent these integrations into the pages that they were like, this is amazing. Like to be adjacent to this content and organically our messaging organically integrated in such a tight way. That was that to this day is still part of the reason why cargo survives is that we have that still same DNA of really trying to bring something unique and different to our advertising partners so that they can, you know, they can look at our offering and say, wow, that is, that is truly something different than what, what I can get somewhere else 
Uh, and we can prove now because the, the performance is now really quantifiable, which it wasn't back then. Today, because of the way that you know, companies like Moat, IS, and DV, and third-party companies like IRI and Nielsen can measure sort of engagement and can measure unaided recall, we can prove today that these, this approach to the market with these, with, with these formats and creatives that truly are better integrated than standard IAB formats, truly perform much better from getting human beings, not machines, but human beings, who are sort of traversing and seeing these ad experiences and brand experiences on a day-to-day basis. They stumble across these things and they, it, it, it triggers curiosity, it triggers attention, and it triggers, frankly, you know, after the fact, our ability to prove that it actually sinks in from time to time in about 10% of the cases where they can actually be like, oh yeah, I saw that. I remember that. I, I I recollect that. I even, you know, am interested in that when I'm thinking about buying, going and buying a product in that in that channel. That to us is proof that we'll survive, you know, over the next you know decade if we can continue to maintain that differentiated brand and ad experience that we can prove demonstrably has impact on consumers' ability to make choices about the purchase, purchases where we can actually have some kind of impact to that, to that, you know, to that choice opportunity for that consumer, which, which, which we've been able to prove that we can. So a great uh, inadvertent segue to Stitcher ads. Let's talk about that and what that adds to the cargo growth story and the cargo arsenal of tools for brands. So Stitcher is our first attempt, instead of sort of uh, inventing it in-house, to see somebody, second attempt actually, we, we did have a plug-in earlier that has worked phenomenally well for the company. But our second, but this is the first meaningful, uh, requires real cash outlay uh, attempt to create that diversification that I've, that I sort of talked about at the beginning of, of our session. Um, you know, what we've come to realize is that, uh, and again, it's again, another, another proof point, another trend, uh, commerce via the device, phone and desktop to some degree, but really b- via the phone is a holy grail opportunity, I think, for the, for the larger ecosystem and market. The idea of, of narrowing uh, purchase to to actually what you see on that in that ad experience, and then making a decision from that ad experience to either check out right there within that ad experience, or drop you very deeply into a commerce place to buy, or save it on the device and walk it into the store. And either get a wish list or a, or a shopping list that you can sort of save on behalf of that consumer or even a coupon or discount that, that can drive you know, uptake of that product. What Stitcher has, which I think is extraordinarily interesting, is those deep retail relationships where they're able to mine uh, both the consumer data out of the retailer on a uh, consumer uh, protected and consumer volunteer basis, where consumers are actually allowing not Stitcher, but the retailers themselves, because Stitcher really acts as a platform on behalf of retailers, to to capture their purchase data. So it's the retailer purchase data opted in by the consumer, Um, as well as um, the retailer effectively making available to Stitcher every single one of their product SKUs. And so when you think about, for example, uh, William Sonoma, they have plates, they have silverware, they have napkins, they have serving platters, they have glasses, they have bowls, they have uh, cooking products and cooking utensils. You think about the number of SKUs that William Sonoma has and carries, both in their retail outlets, but even online, they have more. Um, and you think about the type of consumer that's purchased from William Sonoma in the past and 
the fact that they have, you know, loyalty to that brand and they have provided their information to Williams-Sonoma for email and for other uh, areas where they touch you around, uh, you know, around sales, around opportunities, around cooking classes, et cetera. Stitcher can extract both those parts, both the SKUs and the consumer data. They can put that together into an ad creative experience that really tells you about certain products that you would be interested in based upon your past purchases and some of the data that sits in the walled gardens. And they can actually dynamically generate a ad creative that you see inside of Instagram and Facebook. Again, Cargo doesn't, hasn't traditionally operated in those areas. So that's a, a departure from our core business, which will get you inside of Instagram to be like, oh, that's awesome. I've been looking for a new spatula or a new set of bowls or napkins or utensils. Um, and they will, over time, based upon the retail data and based upon using the algorithm inside the walled gardens, try to serve you up that product or sets of products that will get you to be like, of course, I need to buy that. And then you go and transact based on that. And then they can look after the fact and say, here are the consumers that were exposed to these product offerings, these four, five, six different SKUs uh, inside of Facebook, Instagram. And they can take that data back from Facebook and look and see in the closed loop whether that person that was exposed to that ad actually went in and purchased any item from Williams-Sonoma. So I think that closed loop from start to finish, products, consumer data, into the wall gardens, and then coming full circle, ability to measure success from that, those ad experiences that took place in that set of walled gardens. And again, they're, they're beyond that now. They're in Pinterest and into Snap and lots of other gardens that exist. Super exciting, super exciting. And what we hope to do is learn from them and extend their gardens to the open web, which I think Cargo is great at. So if Cargo can even just turn on some of that retailer spend across the open web, and we have a collective platform that drives performance, wherever that performance can be gained, whether it's in Instagram or Facebook, whether it's in some of these other walled gardens or whether it's on, across the open web, and whether we can provide that same set of technology and capabilities across multiple new places, just increasing the inventory and the capacity to, to, for performance uh, for those existing Stitcher clients. And if we can bring Cargo's clients, because they don't have every retailer on the planet, we have a much larger sales force, to Stitcher in this larger vision, that's how I think with this adjacent to our core business, we can see a dramatic shift in the total number of people interested in, in seeing commerce get closer to that consumer experience, that consumer ad experience. A great story. And uh, I'm not much of a gambler, but if I was at Caesars, I would move a big pile of chips and, and put them on cargo. A br brilliant, brilliant story and brilliant acquisition. So we both sort of love not only the digital experience, but the live experience. And you do some terrific events in-house for your clients. You've been a great partner activating with us at Advertising Week all over the world. Talk about the emotional part last week. You were around quite a bit at Hudson Yards. Talk about the emotional part of getting a chance to be in the company of a lot of folks who you probably haven't seen live in the flesh much the last year and a half and to reconnect with people in a live environment. So first off, you know, the fact that we feel, we, I think everybody says, are we back? You know, I was, I was with uh, Jeremy Corman from Snap. We were on this terrace uh, with a lot of other friends from, from Snap. And, and we're like, is this, are we, are we actually back? Um, so that, that I think is something that we all, still there's a huge question mark, you know, with Delta and I'm looking out at my office today and, you know, we're, we're a very small skeleton crew compared to where we're, you know, pre-pandemic. But there's this question of like, oh my God, are we, are we, uh, are we going to see our friends in the industry again? Are we going to be around them? Are we going to be able to sit down and have uh, fun conversations and dinners and events and entertainment? Uh, 
like pre-pandemic. So that's that to me, you know, all of these these moments where it becomes a little bit closer to what it was pre-pandemic are 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 rays of light in what has been, you know, on some level an uncertain darkness um, that has sort of clouded not only us, you know, in the advertising industry, but I think everybody on a global on a global basis. That being said, there is a huge number of people that did it virtually, didn't show up, didn't didn't come. And I think there's a, a number, there's, and we see it even inside of cargo where people are like, I can be at a conference and never leave the, I can never leave my home, my kitchen or my living room. Like I don't have to get on a plane from Minneapolis or Dallas or Seattle. Um, I can be with my family. And I think that, that, um, that ability to sort of, uh, rejigger a family time is, I think is going, that's the biggest opposing force, uh, where, you know, just talking to many other of the road warriors that have been my friends that I've seen, you know, in one conference in Florida and then in Cannes and then in Vegas and then, and then in, you know, LA, you know, you're not all in the same city on the same circuit anymore. And there's people that I know are just like, I'm not ready to go back to the circus. That is the, the advertising circuit of conferences where, you know, you're expected to be, you know, to show up. You know, I, I, there was somebody at the conference where I saw a session coming up and I go, I'm in the speaker ready room. Are you around? He goes, oh no, I pre-recorded that. I'm right now with my family in Utah. And so it's, it's going to be a very interesting balance going forward to figure out how much are you continuing to invest in, in family time, in flexibility, in the ability to, to not travel, which, you know, frankly, traveling for many of us that travel a lot, it's pain in the pain in the ass, you know, like the airports and the thing and the vaccination and the masks on an airplane and, you know, the loneliness of a hotel room and trying to figure out what your dinners are. And that's a lot of work at the same time, you know, from a, from a business success perspective, I've had better conversations. I've been more productive and we've gotten more things done sitting across the table from somebody hatching up ideas and future possibilities than a 30 minute zoom session or, or 60 minute zoom session. I don't know that there are certain things, especially around new partners where you're going to get the, that novel bump into somebody and have that quick conversation and hatch a new idea the serendipity that used to exist by going to a conference, you lose that serendipity, which I think is so important to, to growth. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's how I sort of see it. And I would leave you with one other thing, which is I don't know that our, our social skills around other people are as finely tuned uh, with, you know, we all used to sort of, you react off cues. When do you talk? When do you not talk? When do you bite your tongue? When do you, when do you sort of share an opinion? That those cues have been re-engineered in two years in COVID. Um, you know, and we were sort of laughing about it, but we're like, are we sort of good at schmoozing anymore? I don't know. I you would think that hey, that's a soft skill. You shouldn't lose that. It's like riding a bike. But I would argue that you're not as good at that stuff. Uh, if you don't practice it and it's not something that you, you, you utilize on a regular basis, you know, it's like anything. If you, you know, if you don't do it on a regular basis, you may still be able to do it, but you're not going to do it as well as when you had, had it as a finely honed skill. So, you know, there were, I think there are more awkward pauses and strange things and your edit button isn't working as well. People are sort of volunteering crazy shit that they probably shouldn't. So it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting time to see how long it's going to take to, to sort of work that muscle and get better at, you know, get better at it. Yeah, no, very well said. And, and I certainly think you, the concept of this hybrid model, which is what we executed last week, where folks have the option and the opportunity to be there live or to be there through the medium that we're using right now. Um, I think it allows us to reach a larger audience. You know, what we saw most of all, I think, Zoom or Teams or Hangouts, 
whatever it might be, they lack emotion. What creates emotion is that human connectivity. Looking someone in the eye through two screens is very different than looking them in the eye in person. And the visceral emotional reaction that we saw at Hudson Yards, and again, Cargo, a huge player with there, with us there. And what we saw, I think the two concerts in particular, up in Harlem at the Apollo Theater, and then the next night in the backyard, as they call it, at Hudson Yards with Anderson Pack, uh, you don't see that in this environment. That only happens live. And we, we were very humbled uh, with the turnout last week. And we couldn't do it without you, Harry. You're an indelible part of the family. And um, I love the chance that we got to play golf. I think you, I was super impressed with your uh, skill. I don't know where you find the time to practice and how busy you are between cargo and home. But you got, you got some game, my friend. And it was a joy to play. And I hope we get a chance to do it again. Uh, you know, I just wanted to say thank you for, for this opportunity. It's always fun to talk with friends. We always loved, you know, supporting, you know, the advertising industry and advertising week. And you've built an amazing organization. Um, the fact that you bring people together the way that you do, it really is an institution and a critical part of the, of the industry that I think everybody knows and loves. And so thank you for continuing to lead it. Thank you for putting it together. Uh, thank you for, you know, the, all the, the blood, sweat and tears and effort. Pulling something off like that is not, that is a lot of work. And I, don't, I think people sort of just expect it to, to exist and it doesn't. It only exists because people are willing to, to put the work in to make it exist. And so thank you for continuing to lead by providing an opportunity for all of us to, to learn from one another and to, and to connect with one another. And hopefully uh, you will see those numbers grow and we will, we will sharpen those, those social schmoozing skills and, uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll bring back those serendipitous opportunities uh, that only can happen in person uh, as, uh, as advertising flourishes over the next number of years. Well, thank you and uh, absolute joy to talk to you. Thanks for doing this, Harry. Thanks again.